Uh, my name is Bob Steele, and as a member of the trustees of the Institute, and on behalf of all of us at the Institute and our fellow sponsors at the Atlantic, it's great to welcome you here today. Um, we're all appreciative that you come. Those of you that are returning and have been here for previous festivals, welcome back. And those of you that are coming with fresh eyes to enjoy the Aspen Institute Ideas Festival, welcome and thanks for being here with us. You know, one of the challenges we have every year is in our sixth year is how to keep things fresh and we're looking forward to getting your reactions to what's gone right and what we can do better and we're focused on that too. We think that this year has lots of great prospects and we're excited about the things that we're going to be talking about over the next week. Believe it or not, as we just kicked off before this comments, that we're going to have 180 sessions over the course of the next week. And surely, we hope you'll all enjoy your time here, although I guess at some point fatigue will set in, either intellectually uh, or maybe physically, uh, from some combination of the presentations and the altitude, but just keep going because we think we have lots of great events for you to enjoy. You know, it's uh, hard. Uh, this year we were so tight that we had uh, starting sessions, and I don't know which ones you went to, but they were both fantastic, and it's hard to imagine how we could have better people start us off than David and Neil and, and Mort and, and then Dove and Tom, and we thank them for the way in which they got us all off to the races earlier today. You know, uh, now what we want to do is continue the momentum, and it's become a tradition that we begin our sessions with some brief comments from people about their big ideas. But before we do that, let me just take a second to describe some of the things that are going to happen this week. And then I'm going to be introduced, which will be a privilege for me, David Bradley. Then Elliot Gerson will set the stage for our big idea presenters in just a few minutes. This year, we're going to have some new topics and some that we think are quite uh, important for all of us to be thinking about. And Kitty Boone and her team and Elliot and the rest sit down uh, almost the second this festival's over, start to think about what we think might be the big ideas for next year. And so for this year, let me just uh, review for you some of the things that we think we'll, you'll enjoy thinking about. One is the century of biology, discussions ranging from global pandemics to scientific advances that we think can change the face of medicine and make life better for all of our populations. The next economy which will explore the role of innovation as the key driver to our nation's growth in terms of human capital, business strategy, and competitiveness. Next, race in America. With discussions that probe the topics like criminal justice system, the achievement gap in a world that some have called post-racial. Also, too, woven throughout several of the different strategies is going to be a theme of looking at women and girls and their role in society and what we've learned about this important topic. You know, so much has been accomplished in just one or two generations, but the real question isn't what's been accomplished, it's what we can do to accomplish the rest in the future. And so that's woven through lots of other of our sessions, and we think that'll be an important point for us to focus on. Also, later in the week, we have some amazing conferences and discussions on Latin America, and we'll actually have a session with nine Latin American leaders presenting together, talking about the opportunities and the challenges for this close neighbor of the United States. Also, too, on a lighter side, uh, later in the week is talking about in sessions about the importance of play and the idea that people who have, feel good about themselves, enjoying themselves, and the physical aspects of good play, how that sets a foundation for other good things. So then I think that I've kind of reviewed a, a little bit of what we're going to be going through. Then the question becomes, well, gee, what's the purpose here? A and I guess for me that the whole goal here is to bring all of us together and have a discussion 
that's not characterized by the, um, the, the, the quip of the moment or an appeal for a short-term um, response, but instead uh, add a different rhythm to the way we think about things and also make a special effort to listen to those that might have a perspective different than yours and hopefully the combination of the presenters and the environment here in Aspen and the tone that the Aspen Institute seeks to set will be something that leads you in that direction. You know, we're quite fortunate here to work with the Atlantic at the Aspen Institute, but we also together, uh, the Aspen Institute and the Atlantic, have some terrific underwriters who are helping make all these things possible. And so it really is appropriate for me to take just a second and recognize Allstate, Altria, Applied Materials, Booz Allen, Ernst & Young, Hewlett-Packard, Mercedes-Benz, and Thomson Reuters, and U.S. Trust, the Bank of America Private Wealth Management. Also, we have supporting underwriters with Monsanto and the W.K. Kellogg Foundation. What has made this festival work over the last few years has been this extraordinarily special relationship that we at the Aspen Institute have with the Atlantic. And here, there are a number of people who will be with us on campus from the Atlantic, and people that organize, write, and produce this first-class magazine will be with us, and I encourage you to take advantage of the privilege of being with them, meeting with them, and sharing ideas with them. This talented team is led by the inimitable David Bradley, who at a time when magazines are either becoming extinct or moving exclusively to the web, has carved out an important and very successful space for thoughtful analysis and deeply reported pieces on the pages of The Atlantic, The National Journal, and The Atlantic Media Properties. If anyone ever questioned whether one person can make a difference, David Bradley is the embodiment of that notion. Through the power of his personality and intellectual breadth, he's responsible not only for maintaining the traditions of this 150-year-old magazine, but also makes for an amazing, endless, and interesting partner, which we appreciate so very much. Now let me introduce David Bradley, who I'm pleased to have as our partner and my good friend. Thank you. There's no part of my life that's uh, better than that introduction. Thank you. Um, I was reminded to add one thing to what Bob had said. Um, we're also grateful that Shell Oil is one of our underwriters this year, and Shell Oil is very grateful to be here and not in the Gulf. So. <laughs> Good afternoon. I hope you will forgive me the way I'm going to start here. It's just that I've known so many of you for so long now that I've, I've come to feel comfortable with you. Um, this has been, uh, the last 10 days have been an enormous personal strain for me. Um, and there's something I, I want to figuratively get off my chest. Um, it's, a, it's a confession of sort, and, and I'm sorry for this. Um, my name is not David Bradley. Um, my name is Boris Zukovsky. <laughs> for six years, my assigned wife and I <laughs> have been deployed out here to document the private conversations that all of you have with each other before the program, at the end of the program, in those sessions in between, and especially to bring out those moments of acute insight and original intelligence and mastery of subject matter as to national security and to matters of state. And as to that latter, I hope I won't offend you in saying that in Moscow, you are a huge disappointment. <laughs> I have pitched you as the best educated 
most professional, most prosperous, most professional, uh, high-end, influential insider cabal in North America. Is there not one of you here who has any state secret? <laughs> Let me just give you an example of how despairing it is to write back these cables that I've been sending. Um, so, for example, for a few years, I've been raising the topic of the debate over preferred brands in bottled water. Uh, I have been developing a source here, um, a Ms. Linda Resnick. Um, Linda has told me in confidence that Fiji water is the best water here in Aspen. Uh, I spend as much time with Walter as he will allow. Um, utterly, utterly useless. Um, <laughs> Walter's whole focus is on what he calls founding fathers. So it's Ben Franklin this, Ben Franklin that. I don't have the least idea who your Ben Franklin is, but whoever he is, he has a stalker in Walter Isaacson. <laughs> and then there's Tom Friedman. Um, you would think that Tom Friedman would be of a lot of interest back in Moscow. Um, the problem is that he is one of ours. <laughs> Tom's real name is Trumfim Friedmedevev. <laughs> for those of you who don't think I rehearsed this, I'll do that again for you. Trumfim Friedmedevev. I have known Tom since our university days together in Minsk. I hope you will believe me when I tell you he knows exactly nothing about the Middle East. He's never been anywhere near the Middle East. Tom majored in interpretive dance at Minsk. <laughs> he danced several years for the Bolshoi before he was cut out in 1983. So whatever you now think of me, I want you to know that it's been hard these last five or six years uh, reporting in. And if you see me around campus, um, you might come up and just share one little state secret with me. <laughs> Or if you see me talking with someone else, probably best not to interrupt. Um, almost certainly he or she is downloading classified information. <laughs> now I'm going to do what you should never do in my field. I'm going to reveal a secret of statecraft. Before your eyes, I'm going to change cover back to the David Bradley at the Atlantic that some of you know. Uh, before I do that, let me just note that if any of you has found that Atlantic David Bradley to be pretentious, insufferable, too much by half. All of us agree in Moscow. <laughs> he's always talking about poets and playwrights and authors as if he's read any of them. So here it goes, here comes the change. There. Good afternoon. I want to begin where... I want to begin where I will end, and that is by telling you the privilege the Atlantic feels in being a partner of the Aspen Institute, and the privilege I think both institutions feel in having you as our guest this week. The American playwright, <laughs> David Mamet, uh, was asked by his friend Warren Beatty to babysit his, Warren Beatty's children, um, one afternoon, which turned out to be a long and a disagreeable affair. And afterwards, Mamet commented on Beatty's children, saying they were under-deprived. <laughs> I 
Isn't that our state of affairs, underdeprived? Underdeprived to be here in Aspen, underdeprived by this extraordinary bounty of the Ideas Festival that Kitty Boone has prepared for us, underdeprived just by our lot in life. So life isn't fair, and I've been given that unfair advantage. So let me lead with appreciation for the Atlantic and for my own part. I can't tell you how much it's a privilege and how much we appreciate being here with the Aspen Institute and getting to host you across the next week. Uh, it's now my privilege, in addition to introduce you to Elliot Gerson, who's the Executive Vice President of the Aspen Institute and a longstanding colleague of a lot of us here. Thank you. Thank you, Boris. Uh, e uh, <laughs> Igor Gorsanovitz here. Um, we are absolutely thrilled that you're all here at our sixth Aspen Ideas Festival. And as you've heard from Bob and from David, I want to tell you just how important our relationship is with our friends at the Atlantic. It really would not be possible uh, without them. You will be seeing any number of their celebrated, appropriately celebrated editorial staff on the dais uh, over the next number of days. But please understand that their contribution to this festival goes far beyond uh, the intellectual brilliance of the handful of the uh, uh, Atlantic editors uh, whom you'll be seeing. And they're, they're fully co-conspirators with us in planning this uh, over the course of the year. Uh, the current issue of the Atlantic, uh, which you will all have in your welcome uh, uh, briefs, uh, actually I th is the ideas issue. And I, I think, James, this was inspired several years ago by the Ideas Festival. And it relates also to this opening uh, session where we invite a number of people whom you will be getting to know over the next few days to share a big idea with you, a big idea limited to three minutes. Uh, first, a few of those people uh, will be people who've actually written uh, the ideas in the magazine. I'm not quite sure what I think of the, uh, the lead story, the lead idea, the end of men, uh, which is of a concern to approximately half of us. Um, uh, uh, but, but we are very, very pleased that this is just a way to give you a flavor of what you're going to have over the next few days. But one of the very biggest ideas that we are enormously proud of, uh, looking back over the last uh, five years, has been the role played by the Bezos Scholars Program. This year, a dozen top high school rising seniors and outstanding educators from public high schools around the country are going to be participating in this program. And what we're gonna look at right now is just a short video that shares a very big idea and an idea in action from the past scholars. So if we could please roll that short video. Each summer since 2005, 12 top public high school juniors and 12 exceptional educators have arrived in Aspen as Bezos Scholars to attend the acclaimed Aspen Ideas Festival. Scholars know they'll have seven days to experience, absorb, articulate, and share. And after they return home, they'll have one academic year to create sustainable local ideas festivals that'll transform their schools and communities. In Aspen, Bezos scholars explore topics with the people they've previously experienced only in lesson plans, on TV, and the big screen. They've met with scientists, 
ocean conservationists, entrepreneurs, military leaders, creative artists, authors, journalists, inventors, and more. As future leaders, festival attendees and speakers all over campus tell them to shine a light, ignite a spark, while asking, what's your big idea? U.S. Secretary of Education Arne Duncan spent more than an hour listening to 2009 scholars. I walked out of that conference room after meeting Arne Duncan with a newfound sense of empowerment. A government official had actively sought my opinion to take back to the White House. As the week progressed, I learned that experience was not an anomaly. They had a scholars-only breakfast with Sandra Day O'Connor. Sometimes a breakfast is just a breakfast, but this was life-changing and school-changing. The festival first created by 2007 scholars at Metropolitan Learning Center in Bloomfield, Connecticut, offered its third annual fest in 2010. This celebration of Haiti drew more than a thousand attendees and raised funds to help rebuild their sister school in Haiti. 2009 scholars from Greeley West High School in Colorado created Ethnic Fest to celebrate diversity through the sights, sounds, and flavors of more than 20 nations. Offerings included Chinese dragons, Korean and Spanish cuisine, world music, and presentations including not everyone who speaks Spanish is from Mexico and dispelling the terrorist myth. Really we wanted to just have a forum where people could come together and learn about each other in a really non-pressured environment so that we could just start dialogue between groups. 2009 scholars from Freedom High School in Tampa, Florida reached hundreds of students in Title I schools through their I Feel the Need to Read Literacy Festival. The impact of the festival may soon reach beyond the district as more high schools move to adopt elementary schools for similar literacy festivals. The results of these local ideas festivals, say students and educators, include an expansion of global awareness and community involvement. There's a little more knowledge, compassion, and concern, and in many cases, direct action. We know that attendance at the Aspen Ideas Festival can be life-changing for the individual when these scholars, both students and educators, return home inspired to create local ideas festivals, it may be life-changing for the schools and communities across the U.S. Bezos scholars are getting noticed. The I Feel the Need to Read Festival landed Blake O'Connor on Parade Magazine's All-American Service Team. During Kalamazoo High School's commencement speech, even President Obama took notice. Well, I may challenge myself to be the president of the United States in 2048. Mr. Simon, I'm glad that, according to the Constitution, you can't run until you're 35. But it, it gives me great confidence uh, to know that we've got such incredible young leaders uh, who are going to be remaking the world uh, in so many different ways. program, of course, wouldn't be possible without the generous support of the Bezos Family Foundation, and I want to give a special thanks to Mike and Jackie Bezos, whom I'm sure are out there somewhere. Thank you very, very much.
I'd like now actually to ask the dozen Bezos scholars to stand. You will all be getting to know them well because they, if past experience is any guide, will be asking the best questions over the next few days. Where are you, Bezos scholars? Okay, as I said, we've asked each of our presenters uh, to, to share with you a big idea in the span of just three minutes. Each will introduce himself or herself, but it's my pleasure to introduce the first of the presenters, legal scholar and commentator, Jeffrey Rosen. My name is Jeffrey Rosen. I am a law professor at George Washington University and the legal editor of The New Republic. I have no idea why I was chosen to introduce the first of all the big ideas. It must be because my big idea is either the biggest or the smallest of the ideas. Uh, but I think it's a big idea, and here it is. The future of free speech will be determined not by any president or king or government. It will be determined by lawyers and businessmen at companies like Google, Facebook, and Comcast. So who is the person who has more power over global free speech than any president or any Supreme Court justice? Uh, these are the lawyers at Google, led by Nicole Wong, the deputy general counsel, and who I met recently. Her colleagues at Google call her the decider, <laughs> because Nicole Wong is the person who's woken up in the middle of the night to decide which YouTube videos will stay up or be taken down in response to urgent demands from the Thai government or the Turkish government or governments around the globe. Her power over free speech is awesome. This year, Google was praised by free speech advocates for withdrawing from China in response to fears about hacking and also for publishing the requests that it receives from foreign governments on its website. But not all giant media corporations have fared so well in the court of public opinion. Not long ago, Comcast, America's largest internet provider, was criticized for blocking BitTorrent, the leading open source file sharing service which competes with some of Comcast's own video apps. As a result, Comcast users were unable to download First Amendment protected material, including the King James Bible. In response to Comcast's action, this year, the Federal Communications Commission, led by Julius Janikowski, embraced a principle of network neutrality, which says that internet service providers have to treat all data equally and may not block or discriminate against any content or applications. Also this year, a federal court struck down the net neutrality policy on the grounds that Congress had not explicitly authorized it. The FCC has tried to reintroduce the policy, and there will be a fight between regulators and Congress that will ultimately determine its fate. But you see now the point. The future of free speech will not be determined by a Supreme Court justice interpreting the First Amendment because the First Amendment only binds government. It doesn't bind Google, Comcast, and Facebook. And that's why I have a very important message to deliver uh, to the titans of digital communications who are in this room. The future of the First Amendment will be determined by federal regulators, by global legislators, by engaged citizens, but ultimately by the decisions that you make in the course of doing business. Use this awesome power wisely, or an engaged citizenry around the world may rise up to ensure that you do. 
Thank you so much, and enjoy the festival. I'm Kim Bottomley. I'm the president of Wellesley College, a college that's especially for women. We invest in women and, and have a special educational program for women. I'm a scientist. Uh, as a scientist, I'm a biologist and specifically an immunobiologist and spent uh, almost three decades looking at uh, basic mechanisms to understand asthma and allergic responses. And so I'm gonna talk a little bit about the intersection between those two things. We, think, we hear a lot about the fact that we lack an educated or a scientifically literate citizenry. We hear a lot about the fact that there's a shortage of a scientific workforce, or there could be. But I think the big problem is, is there's a lack of leadership in science. By that, I don't mean that the top scientists aren't good leaders. But what I really mean is that there are far too many individuals, individuals with power, the leaders in the country, who have any information whatsoever about science or scientific thought. And I think that that's not a good thing for the world. So why do we need this and why is this a problem? Most of the major problems in this world have to do with science or will require participation in science. The global challenges. We need science leaders to be able to weigh in, to use their expertise, along with the expertise of others to be able to solve these problems. We need teamwork and collaboration. So where do we need to go? I would say that in addition to continuing higher education in, the, in order to continue to educate the best scientists in the world, we need to be able to educate students who major in science but can populate any career. We need attorneys, we need bankers, we need judges, we need lawyers, we need accountants, we need people like that who are all, who all majored in science. Think of it as the fact that if some of our senators were actually science majors, we'd be able to make better decisions about those kinds of problems that face the world. So what can we do about this? I think one thing we have to do, or really there are two things we have to do. We need to change science pedagogy from the point of view of higher education, and we need to change the perception of science. Both of those are hard to do in, the, in, the, in terms of higher education. So first, let me just give you some examples of that. Students in science, students who major in science, come to college pretty much committed to majoring in science. Other majors are recruited or attracted to science once they get to college. When you think about that, unlike other majors, the early education in science really lacks the sort of big ideas, the engaging thoughts. I think about science as when I was a first-year student taking my courses in science, it actually doesn't look a lot different, the courses and the things I took, than first-year students today who are taking those courses in science. And it's been a long time. We need to think about the pedagogy. Science careers 
often lead to a narrowing of the career choice. So people who major in science often have a narrow sense of what their careers could be when they graduate from college. So in that sense, science isn't really truly a part of the liberal arts. Perception makes a difference. There's a sense that people can't major in science if they don't have the ability to major in science. Some of this is just stereotyping, and it's been particularly damaging for women. So there are many things to think about. So what do we need to do? We need to think about leadership in science. We need to think about leadership to have more leaders in science in the decision-making people in this country. We also need to think about educating students for leadership in science. And this is also to educate students who will ultimately be the supporters of the science enterprise. And so I think that it will be good if we could make science much more a part of the liberal arts, integrated into the liberal arts, and therefore will be a part of our society. Thank you. Hello, everyone. I'm David Leonhardt. I'm an economics writer at the New York Times. Uh, but since I'm approximately the only adult in my family who is not a teacher or a researcher or otherwise in education, I spend as much time as possible masquerading as an education columnist. And that's what I'm doing here uh, this week, which I'm happy about. Um, my idea uh, plays off the British term NEETS. Um, it's an acronym that stands for Not in Education, Employment, or Training. Um, it is focused on people who are between the ages of 16 and 24 years old. And during our Great Recession, we have had, um, as you might expect, a huge increase in the number of NEETS. Um, now about 15% of people between the age of 16 and 24 would count as NEETS. If we look a little higher up the age distribution, um, and this isn't a British term, I made this up, uh, and look at 25 to 34 year olds and try to think of how many of them are NEEPs, not in education, employment, or parenting, um, it is distressingly similar. It is north of 10% of people between the ages of 25 and 34 who are essentially idle um, right now in this country. Um, and the reason that this Great Recession has had a disproportionate effect on young people is because it has actually been a recession that has had hiring or a lack of hiring more at its core than firing. The layoff rate during our Great Recession has not been particularly hugely higher than it was in much milder recessions. But starting in about late 2007, the hiring rate that companies and public sector too, but mostly companies, the hiring rate of companies plunged. And so what this means is that if you're looking for work, it is very, very difficult to find work. Um, that's why you hear these statistics about how many long-term unemployed they are. And if you think about young people, not only are they more likely to be looking for work because they're coming out of school, they're more likely to change jobs. And so they're more likely to find themselves through with one job and looking for another. It's been very difficult to find another job in this recession because of the huge slowdown in hiring that's now going on three years old. What's particularly worrisome about our NEETS and our NEEPs is that people pay the price for decades, for essentially their entire working life, for being out of the labor force for a long time when they're young. And so solving this problem is both an immediate issue, it's a reason to be concerned about the slowdown in the recovery we've had, but it's also a long-term issue. And over the longer term, I think the clear solution to this issue 
our colleges, four-year colleges and two-year colleges. In the early part of the 20th century, the United States made a decision that it was going to lead the world in high school education. In Europe, countries were saying, you know what, we don't need to educate all of our people for high school. We're wasting education on a lot of them. A lot of them don't need it. They can do jobs that don't require a high school education. It's the sort of thing, of course, that you hear about a college education in this country. This country did decide that high school should be universal, and it has reaped the benefits of that for decades and decades and decades. But we no longer lead the world in the share of young people graduating from college. One of the big problems is the number of people who enroll and do not graduate. Huge numbers of them end up in this idle category that I'm talking about. Um, we've recently seen a huge burst of educational reform in the K through 12 area. Anyone who's coming to Aspen events doesn't need me to tell them about that. We haven't seen nearly that burst in the college realm. We haven't seen nearly the push to hold the colleges accountable for their results, to highlight colleges that are doing a wonderful job of turning students into graduates. Um, I think that will be, I hope that will be one of the coming big battles of education. And for anyone who's interested in that topic, I would point you to two things to look at. There's a wonderful book out last year called Crossing the Finish Line by Bill Bowen, uh, Mike McPherson, and Matt Chingos that looks at how colleges actually succeed and how colleges fail at getting through, getting students through college. And the second thing is, I would look at just the little bubbling up of reform that we see. It's nowhere like K through 12 education, where we have Michelle Ree and Joel Klein and all these exciting things going on. But you can see little things starting. Um, my favorite example is in West Virginia, where instead of tying their scholarship simply to students being enrolled, which is the way education is funded in most of the country, there is no reward for colleges that do a good job graduating students, and there is no punishment for colleges that do a bad job. Instead, they simply get funding for putting students in seats. In West Virginia, they started to tie scholarships to students remaining on track to graduate in four years. If you do not remain on track to graduate in four years, you lose eligibility for the main college scholarship. I think that's the kind of thinking that we're going to need in order to increase our college graduation rate and reduce the number of neats and neeps, not just in this recession, but going forward. Thank you. Good afternoon. I'm Vivian Schiller, president and CEO of NPR. More than 200 years ago, Thomas Jefferson famously said that given a choice between government without newspapers and newspapers without government, he would not hesitate to choose the latter. But probably for the first time since he uttered those words, the possibility of a government without newspapers is not implausible, although I would expand or modernize the term newspaper in this case to include all platforms in journalism. According to a recent report that came out in March from the Project in Excellence in Journalism, one, uh, uh, excuse me, $1.6 billion worth of reporting and editing capacity has been lost from, commercial, from the commercial news business in the last 10 years, gone. According to that same report uh, that did a survey, um, a quite a large survey with a large sampling, 70% of respondents said that they believe that most news media is biased, 71% said they feel more confused than informed. The fact is, with a few exceptions, like the New York Times and of course like the Atlantic, uh, the business model, of course, for, for many commercial forms of news media is broken. And the tsunami of information that comes at us, or tsunami of stuff that comes at us all hours of the day leaves us confused as to where to, where to turn. 
So here's the big idea, public media. Let me tell you what public media is. Pu <laughs> public media is the nearly thousand public radio stations across the country that serve news and information to their communities, like Aspen Public Radio right here in town. It's, it's PBS shows like Frontline, Nova, PBS NewsHour, and Need to Know. It's the over 300 journalists at, yes, at NPR, who man full-time bureaus still in Baghdad and Kabul, and are reporters who continue to follow stories where others leave, like in Haiti, in New Orleans, and in the mines of West Virginia. It's the dozens, soon to be hundreds, of new news organizations, not-for-profits all, that are springing up across the country. They go by the names of ProPublica, Voice of San Diego, St. Louis Beacon, Bay Newser, Texas Tribune, and on and on. But mostly it is the 40 million people and growing that tune in or log on and the millions among them who support us financially. So how is it that public media has escaped the scrim freight of some of our brethren in commercial news? I can really only hypothesize. I think partly it's the fact that we have sticked to our knitting when it comes to journalism. My favorite definition of journalism comes from Bill Kovach and Tom Rosenstiel, who called it the information that uh, citizens need to be free and self-governing. That's what I think about when I go to work each day. Maybe it's because we're not driven by short-term needs for profit, but the long-term needs of the audience. Because we have many sources of revenue, but yet never charge our listeners, our viewers, and our readers. And maybe it's because to us, the audience are not our customers, but our partners. The problem is, even given all that, we must grow. Despite the fact that NPR has 17 bureaus overseas, that is not nearly enough to cover the world for American listeners and readers. Many public radio and public television stations and many of the new not-for-profits have reporters covering the State House. But to truly understand the impact of government, we need many more. NPR and PBS especially have very good investigative reporting, but we need to fill in where newspapers have stepped away. And so, Public media must, all of public media, must expand and innovate, though I would submit in a different way than newspapers and TVs. One, by partnering with each other. Some of the incumbents, like PBS and NPR, must support and partner with the smaller startups who may not have the audience and the brand, but are doing extraordinary work. We must innovate in digital media and social media to publish, to distribute, to news gather. We must partner with philanthropists who share our commitment to fact-based reporting. We must maintain a discourse that is civil, independent from influence, and free of bias. And we must both innovate and spur innovation by making our content, making it available and open source to engage the audience and all of those citizen journalists and also what we like to call the citizen coders out there who can build upon our work. Because as the ranks of journalists in commercial media shrink and the ranks of self-interested information providers expands, as marketers and agenda-driven orations become publishers, all three of those, by the way, from the March report, then the need for public media to continue to create and deliver honest, unbiased, thoughtful journalists becomes indispensable, and we think that's a big idea. Thank you. Good afternoon. My name is James Fallows. I'm a longtime writer for the Atlantic Monthly. 
We're proud to be here with the Atlantic team inspired by the comedy stylings of our great leader, uh, David Bradley. The rest of us will leave, uh, leave that, that to him. Proud to be part of the Aspen Ideas Festival team, which I've seen evolve in wonderful ways over the last six years. And this community, which includes many people I've worked with, a few I've contended with, and lots of people I have learned from in all circumstances. So with that prelude, my big idea concerns American decline. The first known instance of declinist rhetoric in North America was in 1636, when a Congregationalist minister lectured a group of shivering Massachusetts Bay settlers about how far their standards had fallen from the golden age of greatness, which he dated to just after their arrival with John Winthrop in 1630. At every stage of American history since then, warnings of decline from past glory have rung through our public discourse. Even before the American colonies became a republic, writers dare compare the nascent nation to the Roman Republic, so as to warn about likely imperial decline. Through America's post-World War II era as a world power, the main Jeremiah theme has shifted from falling short to falling behind, behind the Soviets of the Sputnik era, the Japanese of their 1980s heyday, and of course the allegedly unstoppable Chinese today. My cast of mind naturally draws me to this topic, something I first sensed when I woke up on my 13th birthday and marveled at how much more promising life had seemed back when I was 12. <laughs> and America's decline or renewal has been the unplanned background theme of my reporting from around the world over the decades, from Southeast Asia, from Europe, from Africa, Japan, and much of the past four years in China. What I have learned from this process is my big idea about declinist thinking. It can be liberating and energizing, or paralyzing and destructive, depending on how we do it. So let's be very careful how we talk about decline. I assert that nations have personalities, or at least America does. And America has been at its best when its personality is both confident and challenged. Confident in projecting the thick-skinned, long-perspective calm that, to their respective supporters, has been the most reassuring trait of presidents otherwise as different as Ronald Reagan or Barack Obama or Eisenhower or Washington or Lincoln. In classic cinematic terms, this would be the difference between, say, Humphrey Bogart, Bogart and Woody Allen or Catherine Hepburn and Lucille Ball. Confident and challenged in being spurred out of somnolence to address the real problems the nation has always had. This is the useful American combination of optimism about what can happen if the nation does face its challenge, and pessimism, even tragic imagination, of what will happen if it doesn't. Does America now have truly serious problems which might already signal decline? Indeed it does, and they might. But talking as if that is certain, or that we are already number two, not only glosses over the stupendous challenges still facing the imagined num new number one, China, but also brings out the least useful combination of American personality traits, thin-skinned rather than confident, defeatist and bickering rather than motivated. Let us therefore say instead of, instead of talking about decline, say instead that we are number one, but must constantly re-earn that stature or that if we are now number two, it's in the old Avis rent-a-car sense, all the more determined to try harder.
Hi there. I'm Buddy Fletcher of Fletcher Asset Management. Uh, I think I was invited to tell you my big idea regarding building a small fortune. Um, now, I, they may have been thinking that because we were one of the hedge funds that actually hedges, uh, that that's, uh, I would talk about that. But the small fortune I want to talk about is a little different. Uh, the small fortune I want to talk about, uh, or rather the three ways that I'd like to tell you uh, to how you could create a small fortune, uh, start with this. First, you could be Bill Gates and build a multi-billion dollar fortune and give it away during your lifetime, learning as you give, inspiring others, and that's one of my favorite ways of building a small fortune. Uh, another way is, uh, is the, uh, the way uh, Steve Jobs uh, has built his fortune. Going through a career where you get fired and mocked and people take your company and you fight back and you deliver a product that makes people better, that empowers people, that allowed my brother to get a summa on his thesis at Harvard because he could work with Apple software, writing an entire orchestra without having an orchestra there. Uh, that allowed my brother, Jeffrey, who will be speaking this week, to win an Oscar by editing films from early on, from junior high school on, uh, devoting his passion, to having a tool to free his passion. Um, or uh, a, a third way is what my buddy Skip Gates and I like to do. We, we like to try to collaborate to say, let's, let's start businesses, let's make investments. But our goal is not, uh, we're not motivated by greed. I know greed is good is the, the buzzword, and there's a new movie coming out. But I think love is good, not greed. <laughs> uh, if you find something you love, and it's good for society, it serves the greater good, and you pursue that, that's how to build a small fortune. But the real fortune that I will talk about is a very different kind of fortune. Uh, John Doerr, who's here, uh, nominated one of his partners to come to the Crown Fellow Program at the Aspen Institute, and Skip Gates nominated me. I didn't want to come. I was busy. I had work to do. I work hard. But I took a break, and I came, and I wanted to think big thoughts and learn how to make the world a better place. Little did I know this supposedly life-transforming experience would, in fact, be that. On the first night, I met John Doerr's partner, Ellen Powell, and immediately fell in love and decided we'd get married and have kids. And so we are the, the, the most indebted to the Aspen Institute of anybody who's here. Where is Ellen? Where, where is Ellen? Well, I, I won't embarrass you. But in any event, that's the real fortune that I've developed. And I want to talk about that also, the, for the fortune of finding someone to love. Thank you. I was told that at Aspen, big ideas are best delivered wearing flip-flops. <laughs> In 2002, this was 16 October, uh, I lived in the Netherlands. I was a citizen of the Netherlands, and I had uh, published a few works, appeared on television, and there was a cacophony of threats. The authorities, the Dutch authorities at the time, looked at those threats and uh, made what they call an assessment. And they came to the conclusion that if they sent me to Santa Monica for about three weeks, um, the dust would settle and I could go back to the Netherlands. Fast forward. 
I come to the United States in 2006, it's September, and I live with the bodyguards that I had from 16 October 2002, and it's September 2006. And I speak to one of the experts. At this time, there is a whole um, agency of experts all dealing with Islamic terrorism. And I ask the American, how long do you think I'm going to live with protection? And he looks at me gravely and he tells me, you have to outlive a generation. I still live with that. And I'm more aware of it than I think you are. But it's not only me who lives with that threat. We all live with that threat. It's interesting. People always ask for the quantity. But can we think of how that, what's the face? How does, what does it look like? I had the experience of my friend and colleague who got killed in the Netherlands, Theo van Gogh, and I remember the face of the young man who killed him and his arguments for doing that. He considered himself a soldier of Islam. There's another man, Faisal Shahzad, whom you all remember from the Times Square attempted bombing um, two months ago. And during his trial, he also made almost similar arguments at verbatim as the one that the killer of Theo van Gogh made. He said, I am a soldier of Islam, and I'm doing this out of conviction. Now, how is it possible that a young man, two young men in this case, who live in prosperous societies, free societies, decide to freely opt for a conviction, a set of beliefs that tells them it's okay to improve the world by killing other people and that you will get rewarded in the hereafter? Well, we can talk about how it came about. We can talk about the quantity, how, how large is that group. But we can also talk about the big idea. It's not my big idea, but often big ideas are those ones that are staring us in the face. And the big idea that I want us to become more conscious of is one we already know, compete. When we deal with figures like Faisal Shahzad, I noticed that the debate that follows immediately after such an attempt, whether it's successful or whether it is foiled, is one about psychology. Is it because of the foreclosures? In the, in the case of the Netherlands, we even speculated on the fact that it was probably because his mother died. Is it um, what should the FBI do? What should, you know, who, who went wrong? Which government agency did what wrong? But we don't think about simply how did that individual get to believe to get these convictions? And did we offer an alternative set of beliefs? Did we target those young people the way that agents of radical Islam are targeting them, offering them pamphlets, offering them a coherent, simplistic sense of morality? that is acceptable to young people? Are we doing that? Are we competing with them? We are not. We are talking about them, we are analyzing them, but we are not competing. My big idea, which I think we already have, I think Americans, there's no one better uh, than Americans at competition. There was one of the presidential candidates who said, as Americans, if we are able to sell 
a liquid, a brown liquid with no nutrients to millions of people, <laughs> we should be able to sell our beliefs. We should be able to sell our values. And I think there is, there is something in there. I think that it is possible to have a strategic alliance, say, for instance, between Christians, I'm not a Christian, and rational humanists, I consider myself a rational humanist, and feminists, to compose a counter-message. First, let's understand what is it that the agents of radical Islam are saying? What is it that they are selling to this huge demography of millions and millions of people? Can we compose a counter-message, a message of life and a message for life? And can we get that to them? We can do that if we get rid of our inhibition, that by doing so, we are not respecting a different religion. I think that we need to start competing. We cannot bomb ideas out of people's heads. And I don't think that the Secret Service is the best way to go about it. But we can compete. We are good at it. Let's start. My name is Fred Swanica, and I'm the founder of African Leadership Academy in South Africa. Um, Malcolm Gladwell, in his book, Outliers, uh, describes how some people who changed the world, um, like Bill Gates and Steve Jobs that Buddy just talked about, were created. And my key takeaway from that book is that these people are created when there's an intersection of three things. The first, they have a little bit of talent. The second... They give this talent a lot of practice of what they do. And he has this 10,000-hour rule concept. And the third thing is someone gives them an opportunity to get that practice. The thing that troubles me about Malcolm Gladwell's book, however, is that there's a huge amount of luck in the process. So Steve Jobs happened to live in Palo Alto, where in his neighborhood there happened to be a lot of engineers from HP, who gave him computer parts when he was a teenager and he started building computers. He happened to go to a talk one day while Bill Hewlett, one of the founders of HP, was there, and he got himself an internship at HP and so on and so forth. But what if all that hadn't happened? Would Steve Jobs have been created? In Africa, where I'm from, we desperately need outliers. We need people with big ideas who can solve our biggest challenges like hunger, poverty, AIDS, warfare, etc. But we can't afford to wait for luck for these outliers to be created. We need to find a way to engineer these outliers. And so our big idea is to create an ecosystem where these three ingredients of talent, practice, and opportunity can come together and so that we can create the outliers for Africa. And that's what we're doing with the African Leadership Academy. Our goal is to create 6,000 outliers for Africa over the next 50 years to engineer the African Bill Gates, the African Steve Jobs, more Nelson Mandela's, more Desmond Tutu's who can transform Africa. And we believe that that is the only way in the long run that Africa can stand on its, own two feet, on its own feet by removing the luck from creating outliers.
Thank you. Good evening. My name is Regina Benjamin. Since I've been in this uniform, people often ask me how they should address me. Should it be general or surgeon or what? I prefer doctor. While my title is the United States Surgeon General, the rank of my uniform is actually that of a three-star general. That's because I lead the United States public health officers, 6,500 strong, across the country and abroad. While the Navy protects our oceans and our shores, Air Force, our skies, we protect the public's health. <clears throat> prevention is the foundation of our nation's public health system, and prevention is the foundation of my work as Surgeon General. And as Surgeon General, my priorities focus on wellness and prevention. And a new health reform law, the Affordable Care Act, provides a historic funding commitment to promote prevention and wellness. The new law established a national prevention, health promotion, and public health council, which I have the honor to chair. The members of that council um, include the cabinet level heads of agencies throughout government, not just HHS. So that signifies the importance. The council will provide coordination and leadership to the federal level to ensure that government really is focusing on prevention. It's gonna develop the first ever prevention strategy. We've never had a national prevention strategy. It'll also make um, recommendations to the president and to Congress about the most pressing health issues affecting the nation and changes that are affecting the public policy to help prevent those, those conditions. Um, actually, we set, sent our first um, status report to the president and Congress just last week and the president is going to be announcing an advisory council of public members to our, to our council. So with this council, my idea is to hope to move us from a system of sick care to a system of wellness and prevention. And as a family physician in solo practice on the Gulf Coast for the past 23 years, I've seen so many times the missed opportunities for prevention in healthcare settings across the nation. If we really truly want to change our health system and reform our system in this country, we need to prevent people from getting sick in the first place. We need to stop the illness before it even starts. So in addition to the state-of-the-art medicine, we need a new approach to promoting prevention in our communities. I usually don't um, get nervous when I talk, but you guys are some impressive people. <laughs> I turned around and saw Barbara Streisand. <laughs> so I was like, oh. <laughs> I really do want to change the way we think about health in this country. And, and that calls for this nation to take a more holistic approach to um, community health and spanning from our safe highways in worksite wellness to clean air and healthy foods. And so my big idea is to move us from a sick system to a system based on wellness and prevention. And to do that, I need all of your help. Thank you.
am uh, James Bennett. I'm the editor of The Atlantic, and I'm going to just provide a gloss on The Atlantic's big idea from our July-August issue, our cover story by the uh, very brilliant and intrepid Hannah Rosen, uh, which Elliot noted with alarm earlier we called The End of Men. <laughs> Last year, uh, Iceland elected as prime minister the first openly lesbian head of state in the modern world. She uh, campaigned on a vow, among other things, she campaigned on a vow to end what she called the age of testosterone that she said had wrecked the country's banking system and caused all sorts of other problems. The truth is um, that as a man, you don't have to think too hard these days about our multiple institutional failures, Wall Street, the Catholic Church, the Congress, Tiger Woods Incorporated, <laughs> the Federal Reserve, the automakers, the institutions of Sunni and Shiite Islam, the press, um, and so forth, before you get, begin to get a little self-conscious. Uh, it may be that women haven't failed quite so, spectacular, quite so spectacularly because they haven't had the opportunity to do so yet, but it's starting to look like they're going to get the chance. Um, <laughs> the wage gap persists. Discrimination is very real, remains a huge problem, but behind these things, a change that has been underway for a long time is now arriving with a kind of shocking speed. This was the year um, uh, that women passed men in holding more jobs in the U.S. economy. Um, women now have a majority of managerial and professional jobs as well. And as a, as a group, women are coming faster and faster out of the starting gates. Uh, they, they dominate our colleges and our professional schools. Uh, for every two men, who will earn a bachelor's or master's degree this year, three women will. Of the 15 job categories projected to grow the most over the next 10 years, all but two of them are dominated by women. The two are a computer engineer and, and janitor. Um, <laughs> and this trend isn't confined to just the United States, it's happening globally. So far, the Fortune 500 appears most egregiously to be lagging behind this trend. Uh, but our politics is showing signs of, of catching up fast, and our, our popular culture is right on top of it. You can see the signs all around you once you start thinking about it, but take your pick of our recent crop of popular romantic comedies, Knocked Up or Greenberg or Role Models. The male leads are universally losers, kind of man-children, <laughs> who somehow land these successful, beautiful women just by being pathetic and somehow persuading them to help to help raise them, um, <laughs> or pay for their video games. I'm pretty convinced that the screenwriters are by and large still male, um, but, but the movies are on to something. If the age of testosterone is in fact giving way to an age of estrogen, the darker side of the story is that men show signs of falling behind, uh, if not simply giving up altogether. They're now more likely than women to hold only high school diplomas, which, as David Leonhardt said earlier, is not a ticket to success in the modern economy. Um, Lower-income communities in America are, are increasingly looking like matriarchies, where women now make all the decisions, including not to marry at all, uh, because to marry would be to just add one more uh, financial burden to their long list. 
And our, our universities, our, our elite universities, are now running quiet affirmative action programs on behalf of young men who are emerging from high schools significantly less prepared as a group than women. And while women have successfully moved over decades now into what were once male-dominated professions, there's no sign of men moving in the other direction. So it may be true that behind every successful man there was a woman, but now that that woman can succeed for herself, we men are going to have to pull ourselves together and forget, figure out how to compete on our own as well. Thank you. Thank you.